0: The scripture this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then the gospel of Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And then in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The grass withers. The flower fades. The word of our God will stand Let's pray together. <laughs> Father, as we come before you, as we gather around your word, we do indeed confess that it does stand forever, that it is majestic, that it is too majestic for us, and so we are a people in need. And we pray, O God, that you would meet us in this need, in this moment, that your Holy Spirit would come, that it would clear away the distractions and the cares that we bring into this place, that it would illumine us and soften our heart so that we might hear its words and be transformed by them. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.
1: You think of Advent as a time of waiting. Uh, I doubt that it strikes you as something that's really meaningful. Some of you probably did some waiting on Friday at a department store line, buying up your Black Friday specials. Feels like a nuisance feels like an obstruction. feels like something you must get through in order to get to where you want to be. Right? There's another kind of waiting. There's a waiting that's hopeful, though. You know, it's the kind of waiting that you did as a child when you knew that Grandma and Grandpa were coming over for Christmas morning. And you looked out that front glass door window and you're waiting for their car to pull up because you know it's going to have tons of presents and some of them are going to have your name on them and you're, you're kind of mashing your nose up against the window and putting all those gummy fingerprints on the window that mom was never very delighted about, that you were excited because that morning expressed something that you had hoped for. It was something that you had, you had waited for, not as a nuisance, but equally anticipating What happens, though, is when you've eagerly anticipated something for a long time, and it hasn't come when you thought it should come, it goes back to being a nuisance. And you begin to be frustrated. And and you begin to want to give up. You begin to want to just throw in the towel, and you begin to wonder, have I been hoping for nothing? Now, when we look at a passage like 1 Samuel chapter 1 and we look at the story of Hannah, it had to have felt something like that. Because the story of Hannah is one of waiting and one of hoping, one of desiring to see something that her heart pined for to become fulfilled. And the longer she waited, the harder it got. There's a verse that Solomon wrote in Proverbs. Some of you will remember it. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. It's a couplet that could almost be a commentary on our passage. Here's what Solomon wrote. He said, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. You know that experience. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. When it's delayed, when what you want is postponed, when it didn't come on the train, on time. Your heart is sick. It can literally be translated, your heart breaks. It wasn't what you were hoping. It's not working out the way you thought. But a longing fulfilled, and longing there is parallel to hope in the couplet the way Solomon wrote it. The longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Well, what's he getting at? Well, of course, he's hearkening back to Eden, and he's saying it's the way things ought to be. It's a new beginning. It's, it's the thing that gives you life. And you know what that's like, to have longed for something and hope for something. And then maybe when you thought it wasn't going to happen, it came through and it was like a shot in the arm to you. It was like a new day had dawned. Now, now if you begin to think about Solomon's couplet, Proverbs 13, verse 12, and you begin to reflect on Samuel chapter 1, you think it's a commentary on what's going on in the life of Hannah a woman who had for so very long had hope deferred and a broken heart, a heart that was sick, who later experienced what it was like to have a longing fulfilled, and it became to her like a tree of life. Literally, a kind of salvation, as I think you'll see in this passage. And so as we consider the story of Hannah, really really tracing it through the Old Testament, but specifically to the, to the Advent or the Christmas story all the way up to Mary, I want you to see several things about hope, which is what the first Sunday of Advent all about. It's about hope. You can see that on the front of your bulletin. First Sunday of Advent, hope is really the focus. And I want you to see, first of all, that there's a danger in hope. There's a, there's a danger in hope, and we see that in spades in 1 Samuel 1 but that there is a practice of surrendering hope that gives you further hope. And when you learn to surrender your hope, it ultimately leads to the promised fulfillment of what hope was all the time really pointing to anyway. There's a danger in hope. There's a surrendering of our hopes. And then there's a promise when that hope is ultimately fulfilled. And we're going to look at those three things together as we look at 1 Samuel 1 and we trace forward to this beautiful story of Mary. Let's start with the danger of hope. This is really very easy for us to access because we all experience it, even right now in this room, the reality of the danger, the risk, and the difficulty and the pain that comes along with, with hope. And I think one of the things to note in this passage is something that's not readily available to us on the surface of the passage, and that is this, that Hannah really had a pretty good life. Um, She has a husband, a good man, who loves her, who actually has position in the community and the society in which he lives, which would have created stability and steadiness for her. We know this by the fact that he must have had some wealth because he's able to support two women, he's able to support two wives. And the way in which the passage is written, even given us a lineage right at the beginning of 1 Samuel 1, if you do a little history on that lineage, you realize this man was something. He had, he had community position, which means that she was able to stand in the shadow of, almost in the, in the comfort of or in the security of, what it is that her husband offered her. But that's not what the passage focuses on. She's got all of these benefits. She's got all of these blessings. But one thing that we're really focusing on is what she doesn't have. She doesn't have a child. In fact, the entirety of the tension of the passage holds together around the vacancy, around the, the void of not having a child. Now, we need to ask the question, why is that so important? Why is it so important? I mean, we live in a post-feminist, post-women's liberation movement era where, where the traditional role of, of women has been reconceived. And the lines have been drawn quite differently. It would be easy for us to read this passage and think, oh, poor Hannah, she's so trapped by those outmoded cultural mores of ancient societies that were paternalistic in their, their focus. Poor, poor Hannah, so enslaved to her time. Didn't she know that she could just get a career and, and make a lot of money, go to, go to college, get, get a degree, and have various levels of accolades that would be attached to to her name. Well, I think it's important before we just kind of throw stones on ancient history to understand why childbearing was so critical and so important in ancient history, why it was looked upon as a significant cultural value. I want to note, first of all, that women, this ought to, this ought to be obvious, but women are the only gender that can bear children. Now, on the surface, that... you go. Thank you, Nate, for this lesson. Um, this actually distinguished women among men. It, it was the thing that men had to absolutely depend upon women for. Uh, men regularly went away to, to war or they went away for business. And, and women, as, as you women well know in this room, you can run things without us. And, and, and you did. And you do. And, and they work hard, and they provide a the family, and they care for things. They can do things just like men can do. But one thing that men can't do that women can do is bear children. It's, it's the way that women in many ways were distinguished in ancient culture, and it became a significant value, a kind of identity marker for what it meant to be a woman. Now, you need to also understand that the children, and having children and having lots of children was actually a sign Um, of growing wealth now now the reason it was a sign of growing wealth and we think well it's kind of the opposite kids are expensive for us right I mean we have kids and then we got to pay for them. you know for the next 18 22 for some of us 30 40 years it seems these they just don't grow up you know that that kind of thing happens and we're just like these kids are very expensive well in ancient cultures you you didn't think in for a college degree that was another worker on the farm That was another another kid for the shop. That that meant more produce. That meant more to sell. That that meant a broader estate. That that meant more money coming into the home. It was an economic asset to have children. If you didn't have enough children, then you were having to pay someone, which was actually impoverishing you in some way. And and so for ancient culture, there's this very real reality that that wealth was attached to having children. It also meant security. It meant security and long-term provision, you know? This is pre-Medicare. Okay, this is, this is pre-nursing home. Um, if, you are, if you want to be cared for in your old age, have children. You want to be cared for well in your old age, have lots of children. Okay, that's how that worked. And so it was, it was a way of actually securing not only the estate and the lineage and the passing down from one generation to the other, it was a way to actually flood the family with security and with wealth and with protection. Now, when you get in the shoes of an ancient culture and you begin to realize that, all of a sudden, you understand why bearing children was so important. And you might understand why bearing children was such a weight on women. And to not bear children was a tremendous disgrace. Now, if you live in a culture... If you live in a culture that the dominant message and reality for women is bear children, lots of them, and you can't, how do you feel? Like a failure. Like a failure. It, first of all, it's a disgrace to your husband. That, that's how Hannah would have experienced it culturally with Elkanah. He, he gives no indication that he levied that upon her, made her feel that way, but she, it would have been there. It would have been there in, in her heart. You had children for your husband. It's the way it was conceived in many cases. It was, a part of the, it was a part of what he was going to be passing down. She would have felt that. She would have felt that loss of not fulfilling the calling of what was the cultural ideal of what women were in the time. It even, as the text indicates, there would have been the feeling that maybe God himself has turned his back on me, that I'm accursed of him. We're actually described here in 1 Samuel 1 that God is the opener and the closer of the wind. In fact, these would have been not uncommon assumptions. These would have been operating beliefs that would have been in and around the community that Hannah existed in. Now, now if, if that weren't enough, hopefully you're feeling the pressure. If that weren't enough... She's in a polygamous marriage with Fertile Myrtle. I mean, every moment that Hannah's turning around, Panina is having some birth announcement being sent out through the mail. She's putting some ultrasound picture on the refrigerator. I mean, this is, Hannah had to live within the context of another woman whom she shared her husband with, who was living up to the cultural ideal. You can feel this, right? It's a good thing women are not under these pressures today. Hopefully you hear my sarcasm. In our reconceived roles, right? She could have gotten a career. Or in the modern society, she could have felt the pressure of having to be beautiful, like every model that's on the runway. Or have gotten lots of money. Or lots of degrees or made a name for herself in our individualistic society. None of you women feel those pressures, right? Of course you did. And you have to do all that and have a family somehow, right? Every culture is like this. Every culture has expectations and ideals. And usually within those expectations and ideals, there's things that are very redeemable, very good. Childbearing is wonderful. As, As long as it doesn't become an idol... As long as it doesn't, a child doesn't become a savior, and that's a struggle. It's as much a struggle as it were for, in in some ways, a man to not get his all of his strokes from his job. And, and really, we just what we really do is just swap various hopes and earthly things that will bring us fulfillment. And this is a struggle. To struggle that we all live in. And to, to more or less degree right now as we sit in this room that narrative is playing out in your heart and my heart together. So here is Penina. She's just rubbing it in Hannah's nose. I mean literally the text says provoke her grievously to irritate her. Provoke grievously irritate. This is bad. This is bad. This is turmoil. Now. Here, here's where I want you to, I want you to step back and I want you, right now, do you like Panina? Not very much, right? She's just not guy. I want, I want you to like her a little bit. Better, I want you to have compassion on her. Very often, when we are attacking someone else, it often is because there is something missing inside of us. And I think the text tells us very clearly that that's the case with Panina. And, and she actually deals with a similar but different void in her heart as she looks at Hannah. What, what do I mean by this? Well, scholars have argued, and I think appropriately, that, that Penina really deals with jealousy of Hannah. And that's why she pours into her this great irritant, this grievous frustration about not having children. Now, where am I getting that? Well, if you'll look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 4, you'll read this verse on the day when elkanah sacrificed would give portions to peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters and listen to this but to hannah double portion because he loved her oh there it is now both women are missing something they really want both of them are Hannah looks at Panina and thinks, she's got a maid. She's got, she's got all the children. I want a child. I don't want my arms to be empty. But Panina, who looks at all of her children, who was, which was the cultural ideal, but then looks at her husband and realizes she does not have his affectionate gaze. She does not have his heart. She has done everything she knows to earn his affection through children, and it's not working. And, and Hannah, though losing the, the void, having the void of not having children, Peninnah's there with her, and having the void of not having a man, which is two very typical female idols at war in the midst of this passage. Uh, I'm not anything unless I have affection from a man. I'm not anything unless I have a child. And, it, and it's often out of the sense of need and out of the vacancy of heart that sometimes we make decisions like marriage or like having children. We feel something's missing and we go to place our hope in that change in status, that additional child, that new house, that that better job. And and what we do is we fall into sort sort of two different categories when that happens. Uh, we either fall into the category, as I think Panina did here, of of really going on the attack and of becoming bitter, of falling into despair. And over a period of time, you can hope and hope and hope and hope, and it never comes. You just give up. You just fall into despair. And there seems to be some indication in the text that maybe the irritant that's there at such a deep level may be coming from a place of despair in her heart. Or sinfully, we move from one hope to the next. You know what it's like? You thought marriage was going to solve all your problems. It's going to make you happy. Boy, were you wrong. And then you thought it was going to be children. Well, you're just digging a hole. And then you thought it was going to be that retirement home. But it just so happens. It's nice. But your heart's still hungry. And maybe the problem runs deeper. Maybe we're looking at all the wrong places. You see, that's actually in the midst of this text. is two women who are searching for very common things to gain fulfillment, both thinking the other has what they need, and neither can achieve it in one way or another. But only one of them turns to God in prayer. one of them turns to God in prayer. You see, this is is where we go in the second place. We have the danger of hope. Here's the risk of hope. It might be unfulfilled. And then it's often sinfully laden. So we look to things that they can never provide us. And so we live unfulfilled even if we get the things we want. And what do we need to do? Where do we go from here? Well, you've got to surrender hope. That's That's really what we see here in the text. I want you to look at I want you to look at Hannah's prayer. It's, it's an amazing prayer. There in verse 10, verse 11. It says, She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This is aloud. This is a, like a wailing that's being described here. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but you will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. Now I want you to notice something just really quick in the prayer of Hannah. I want you to notice how she talks about herself. She is a servant. It's it's really, it's, it's redundant actually. It's almost awkward to read. Like she didn't need to say it so many times. But apparently she felt the need to. If you will look on the affliction of your servant. If you will not forget your servant, if you will give to your servant a son. Now, what's up with this? Well, in ancient times, a servant was someone who didn't own a thing. Had nothing to their name. It's someone who couldn't own property. It's someone who couldn't even make decisions about their own time or resources. They couldn't make demands on other people. Even the children of servants weren't considered the children of servants. They were considered the children of the master. He's the one who had rulership over those children. Everything about a servant is that they are surrendered to the master. As Hannah comes to the Lord in prayer, she doesn't come with her list of petitionary demands, bargaining with the Lord. Lord, if you do this, then I'll do this, and if I do this, then you'll do that. She comes as someone with absolutely no rights. She comes as someone who says... Lord, I'm your servant. And if you look upon your servant and you remember your servant and you give a son to your servant, here's what she says. I'll give him back to you. I'll give him back to you. Now, I want you to, I want you to see how remarkable this is. Hannah has for years ached for a child. She has longed to experience what it is like to have a child of her own. It was her greatest earthly hope. And we know that she had even good motivation in the desires for that. But now, after long years of that hope being deferred, of her heart being broken, she's gotten to a place where she no longer puts hope in having a child for herself. She only puts hope in having a child if it's for God. If it's for him. Now what is she doing here? I would like to suggest to you that in saying that, Hannah is surrendering her entire life to the Lord. Because if children... And the bearing of children was the cultural ideal. If that's what it meant to really be a woman, if you wanted to be something, if you wanted the world to look upon you as some kind of local hero, have children, have lots of them. And Hannah's saying, Lord, if you give me a child, I'm going to give it right back to you. Now, what is she saying by that? She's saying, Lord, I acknowledge that my identity is not wrapped up in childbearing. That I don't have to feel good about myself by what the world tells me I need to be. But I know that childbearing is a good thing. It's the way you've made it. It's a godly thing. It's a wonderful thing. I'd love to participate in it. But I only want to participate in it if you want me to for your purposes. That's what I want. And when she's doing that, she's surrendering her future to the Lord. Didn't we just say that children were your future, to take care of you. They were your wealth. They were your well-being. They were your future. She says, she's essentially saying, Lord, I'm giving it all to you. I'm surrendering my hopes and desires to you. And as she does that, you know what she experiences? It's remarkable. She experiences peace. She experiences peace. Now, how do I know that? Well, look with me. Look with me in verses 17 and 18. This is after Eli thought Hannah had been sipping on the bottle too long. And Hannah relays to him her deep distress over not having a child. And then in verse 17, Eli says this, Go in peace. Let the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And then Hannah responds, Let your servant, there's that word again, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And here then we have a little picture, a little cameo description of Hannah. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, here's what's remarkable about that. It's in the next verses that we find out she's going to have a child. Not here. One minister I was listening to said if she was really bargaining with God, the rhythm of the passage would have been prayer, pregnancy, peace. But that's not the rhythm of the passage. It's prayer, peace, and pregnancy. Why is that important? It's important because it tells us that Hannah's hope is not in a child for herself. Hannah's hope is in the God who gives children. That's different. That's fundamentally different. She has placed her life, she surrendered her hopes unto the Lord. She doesn't want it unless the Lord wants it. And if the Lord gives it, it's his anyway. She's actually saying, I'm going to give him back to you because he's yours in the first place. She's actually making a statement that's true for every parent and grandparent in this room. That your kids are not your own. They're his. You're steward. He's the master. It's, it's not you That's in view, you think of your children. It's God that's in view. How does he want you to raise his children? What does he want to do with his children that he's given you? And Hannah has now gotten to a place where she no longer has to gain her sense of identity, her stability. You know how badly she wanted to hush up Penina? And it's no longer a thing for her. Only if God wants it, and only if he wants it for him. Now, when, when she gets to this place, it's, it's a reminder, and you see this showing up in her heart, it's a reminder of what Jonathan Edwards taught us. Jonathan Edwards, in several different places, but in, but in one place in particular, he says, God, through suffering, through deferred hope, which is really what often suffering is, it's, it's not getting the relief or the fulfillment of what it is we want, whether it's healing from a sickness, whether it's the gaining of a child in this context, whether it's the landing of a job, whatever it is. It's deferred hope. Whatever the suffering and pain is there, he says God is wise to not give us what it is we want when we want it. And he said the reason for that is because if he always gave us what it is that we wanted, in the moment that we wanted it, we would trust in that thing and not in him. And suffering, deferred hope, is the way he loosens our grip on stuff. It's the way he opens up our hand. And God is like this. He's so loving and so kind to us that he's unwilling to give us things, in many cases that are good, because he knows we'll turn them into idols. And one of the ways that he expresses his love to his children is he disabuses us of our trust in things, and he gets our gaze pointed towards him. And in the moment where you can say, God, give it to me or don't, I'll receive it and then I'll release it. At that moment, he goes, you're ready to get it. You know when you're ready to give a, get a good gift from the Lord? When you don't care whether or not you're going to get it or not. Oh, if it'll bring glory to him. That's when you know you're ready. That's when you know you're ready. Your heart at that point has now been lodged its hope in God and not in the stuff that God gives. The stuff that God gives is just a way to honor Him. It's just a way to glorify Him. And He has become the central focus of your life. And Edward says it's the wisdom of God not to give us the things that we want when we want them. He conditions our heart through suffering. As one of my colleagues at First Pres in Jackson, Mississippi used to say, it's the afflictions of life that wean us from the affections of life. That's exactly right. And it's not to say childbearing is not important, career is not important, jobs important. Certainly it is. Those are good things from the Lord, but they're not ultimate things. And if you hold them as ultimate things, they'll break your heart. They'll break your heart. It'll break your heart to have children, and it'll break your heart not to have children. It will. To not have children will break your heart, but later your children will break your heart. They will. Just wait. They will. It's painful, but it's through the pain that God's kindness is underneath. Because He's showing you that's not where your that's not the eggs your basket needs to be. they your, your need to be in me. I'm your hope. I'm the only one that you can hope in. If 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 Hannah trusts in Elkanah, he's going to die. He's going to go the way of all the earth. So are her children. They can't give her what her heart really wants. She's got to place it in God, and so do you, and so do I. And this is where this surrendering of our hopes to God leads us to the promises of hope. The real promise of hope. Because in verses 19 to 20, we see that Hannah's request was answered. She had a child. And she did exactly what she said she would do. She weaned the child and she gave it to Eli. And Samuel served all his days in the service of the king. And what we find is that Hannah, when she releases Samuel into the entrusted hands of Eli, she she prays again. I love this about her. She prays on the front end and she prays on the back end. And when she prays on the back end, when she she prays before she receives and she prays when she releases... And when she releases, this is what she says. Verse 4, 1 Samuel 2. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, meaning they're now in want. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. And then listen to this. The barren has borne seven Sons, But she who has many sons is forlorn. Now, now the seven sons being described here is almost, almost assuredly symbolic. It, it's a number of completion. The one who had no sons actually in God has seven sons, fully complete. But the one who has put all of their stock in sons They're forlorn. And you can't help but think of Panina and the story of Hannah, played out there in that verse, where she is teaching us to not place our promise in the stuff of this world. And Hannah's identifying very clearly the pattern of Scripture, which is to say that God uses the broken things, God uses the hurting things, God uses the weak things, God uses the barren to bring forth this fullness. That's how he does it. It's not the people who have it together. It's not the wise. It's it's not the elite. It's not the rich. It's those who know that they're not all of those things. Who can really tell the truth on themselves. Those are the ones whom the Lord really uses. Because you see, Hannah knew the biblical narrative. She knew that it was Sarah in the midst of her bitterness who brought forth the promised seed of Isaac. She knew that it was Rebecca who brought forth the father of Israel in her barrenness, a man named Jacob. She knew it was Rachel who in the midst of her barrenness brought forth one of the great rescuers of Israel, Joseph. And she doesn't know, but the narrative of Scripture tells us that one day Elizabeth, right before the Savior would come... A woman in old age who'd been barren all her life would bring forth the very forerunner of Jesus Christ himself, John the Baptist. You see, all of these figures throughout the biblical narrative teach us that God's greatest strength is using our weakness. That it is no obstacle for him to go against what it is, it looks like our resources are and to create something beautiful out of it. In fact, one of my favorite commentators on this particular passage, Ralph Davis, says this. Hannah shares in the fellowship of barrenness, and it is frequently in this fellowship that new chapters in Yahweh's history begins. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, it is utter incapacity that is the prop he delights to use most for his next act in redemption. Hannah knows this. She knows it because at the very end of her song, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she speaks of one who is coming as a mighty king who will be strong, one who will be the anointed one. You know what the word is there? It's the word Messiah. She, she knows, out of all of this brokenness, out of all of this emptiness, God creates fullness, and it's going to be true of a Messiah. <laughs> and almost everybody believes that she's forecasting the rise of David, which her son, by the way, Samuel, would anoint to be the successor of Saul. And we would all believe that, and that's all true, if it weren't for Mary. Because you see, it's Mary who actually sees the longer narrative that Hannah was not privy to at the point in time in which she lived in 1100 BC. It was Mary who would take her Magnificat, that beautiful song that she sang after she visited Baron Elizabeth. She would take the words of Hannah and she would recast the song of Hannah from 1 Samuel 2 into a beautiful new song of redemption that we know today in Luke chapter 1 as the Magnificat of Mary. And it's no surprise, is it, that Mary, when she hears the words from Gabriel, which we read this morning, do you know what she says? She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to his word. Do you, do you hear what she's doing? She's surrendering. She's doing exactly what Hannah did. Now here's why we know she's surrendering. Hannah dealt with the scourge of barrenness in her culture. But Mary was going to deal with the scourge of a child out of wedlock. It was a very different reality. One too old to have a child, one too young. And both would have to fight the cultural rumors and gossip about themselves. As Mary began to talk about an angel appearing to her and having a virgin birth, I bet that went over like lead. Nobody believed that. But Mary said, I'm the servant of the Lord. That would mark her, that would scarlet A her. And she said, Let it be done to me according to the word of the Lord. I'm his servant. I surrender myself to him, whatever he desires and whatever he wishes, and we know that Mary fulfilled that because, like Hannah, on that cross, as she looked up to her son, her firstborn baby, she was up. Of course, she had given up a long time ago. He was to be dedicated to the ministry of the Lord. But interestingly, as she was giving him to the ministry of the Lord, God was giving him to her. Because her son became her savior. And in that moment, what we learn is that we are saved through childbearing through the bearing of Christ, the one child who is the Redeemer of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we would ask that the beauty of this truth not be lost on us right now, but that we would, in the confidence of, of your Spirit that only comes in you, Embrace the fact that you use suffering, you use weakness, you use situations of hopelessness to bring forth the greatness of yourself and to surprise us with your salvation. Lord, today in this room there are hearts from all different types of backgrounds and situations and circumstances and you know them all and you know what they need. Father, give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, and wills to follow everything that you have shown us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.